In your opinion, what is the year 2000 computer crisis and what effect will this have on the world order as you've described it? I'm no big specialist on this and uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure there are people here who can give more competent answers than I can, but uh, there's no doubt that it's pretty serious. Uh, so for example, the uh, uh, U.S. security officials are very concerned about it uh, for one reason because they're afraid that the uh, air defense systems will collapse in the Soviet Union and China where they haven't even started to address these questions yet. And uh, the way what are called air defense systems work, uh, they can shoot off missiles, uh, you know, with very little <laughs> you know, kind of hair trigger. Uh, in fact, the U.S. has actually offered China and Russia new air defense systems uh, to try to make sure that they don't, you know, by accident uh, happen to destroy the world. Uh, that's one problem, but there are plenty of others. I mean, the... Uh, I mean, I imagine that the, you know, the big banks and so on have probably made sure their interests are cared for, but uh, a lot of other problems around. But nobody really knows. As far as I can tell, nobody basically knows. Uh, it could be, you know, the main advice people are getting is stay in your homes for the first week or two of the year 2000. Don't take any trips, you know, uh, store up on food beforehand and see how things kind of even out. I, I don't know. I mean, and I've never haven't read anything that seems to know. <laughs> Is that one working? I don't think it. Hello. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted you to comment briefly on the. Uh, you talked a lot about the institutional economic order, and I was interested in your feelings on the currently ongoing high-level discussions on the multilateral agreement on investment and the obvious lack of public discourse. Mm. Actually, I've, I've written a lot about that, if you're interested, so it's in print. I actually did a review. That the multilateral agreement on investments, which, you, it, which incidentally is for the moment dead, the, uh, it was, uh, this is an, uh, uh, well, sort of the nature of it was captured rather nicely in a Business Week headline last February, called it the, uh, the explosive trade deal you've never heard of. Uh, both parts of which were true. It's an explosive deal, not really a trade deal. It's an in explosive investor rights agreement, which gives investors extraordinary rights, like nothing, you know, the most extreme that have ever been imagined, uh, with no obligations. I mean, all the huge treaty, you know, 150 pages, all the obligations are on what they call states, which means people, you know. The state is, is sometimes the state's a dictatorship, sometimes it's marginally or more or less democratic. Uh, but the obligations are all on people and their in public institutions. And the rights are all for private power, unaccountable private power. And the rights are pretty extraordinary. I mean, corporations had been given the rights of persons, which is outlandish, early in this century, something which scandalized classical liberals, I should say. But uh, that has already happened, although it could be and I think should be rescinded because it's outlandish. But this treaty, like parts of NAFTA, actually gives them the rights of states, uh, which is something novel. Uh, and, the, the, you know, no time to go into it. Anyhow, it's been going on. It was initially, originally they tried to, they thought they'd put it through the World Trade Organization, but that didn't work because there was a lot of objection from third world countries, uh, India and Malaysia, so it shifted over to the OECD. 
uh, the rich countries, you know, 29 richest countries that's more controlled. And it went on for about three years, the negotiations, with virtually no public comment. I did a almost complete review in the United States and England and Australia. Uh, and until the one, uh, until early this year, that's after close to three years, there was like statistical error, you know, uh, occasional art mention here and there. It's not that it was unknown, it was perfectly well known. Uh, so the business press, the business world knew all about it. Their lobbying groups were involved in it from the beginning. The, you know, must have known. Uh, but it was kept, uh, it's one of those inconvenient facts that was kept dark to borrow. Orwell's phrase. The one partial exception was Canada. In Canada, in early mid 1997, it sort of broke through because of popular activism, uh, and that led to a lot of pressure uh, and a lot of publicity. You know, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation and so on. Uh, in the rest of the industrial world, it sort of began to break through, mostly from public activism early this year. Uh, and the the signing date was supposed to be last April, but they backed off. Uh, in near panic, the OECD, there were some quite comical articles about it. The London Financial Times, which is, you know, the premier business daily in the world, uh, had an article called Hordes of Vigilantes. Uh, and it was about the hordes of vigilantes who overwhelmed the OECD and the corporations and the, you know, the rich countries and the transnational and the international financial institutions, this horde of vigilantes, which a lot of activists uh, just overwhelmed them and frightened them and they had to back off from trying to do it. And they quoted people who warned that it may not be as easy as it has been in the past to uh, uh, arrange international agreements uh, in secret and then have them rubber stamped by parliaments. That's the way it's been working until now, but now we may be in trouble because all those vigilantes are around, the trade unionists, environmentalists, you know, grassroots activists, and so on. It's another crisis of democracy. And in fact, a pretty stunning victory for the vigilantes, if you look at the forces that were arrayed against each other. Uh, well, they tried to put it off until October, uh, last October, uh, but it collapsed. I mean, by that time, a couple of major countries had pulled out. France pulled out. Australia pulled out. Uh, the United States kind of mixed. Uh, and for the moment, at least, it's on the shelf, uh, which means they're going to sneak it in some other way. The major effort of the United States has been to try to push it through the IMF rules by revising the IMF articles to include conditionalities that include a lot of the multilateral agreement. The IMF is properly secret, you know, so it never gets reported. Uh, and it, in fact, operates in secret, so that's a better forum. Uh, but uh, people are interested ought to keep their eyes on it. Do you think the recent failure in Paris could be at all attributed to, to the, uh, what you talked about going on in the stock market in Probably. August? Yeah, partly. I mean, partly just the power centers are scared, uh, but partly, and I think we shouldn't underlook, underestimate this, this horde of vigilantes really made a difference. Uh, the same happened last fall, uh, with a year ago, that is, with Fast Track. Uh, up until, as the Clinton administration argued correctly, Fast Track had been standard legislation. Incidentally, this Fast Track issue doesn't really have anything to do with free trade. I mean, even if you put aside the fact that the so-called trade agreements aren't free trade by any, in any meaningful sense, uh, the fast track uh, issue has to do with democracy. 
So even the most passionate advocate of free trade would be in favor of, would be against fast track if they also believed in democracy. I mean, fast track is just an arrangement which allows exactly what I quoted. It allows deals to be made behind closed doors and rubber stamped by parliaments. That's fast track. It's got nothing to do with free trade. Uh, but, and in fact, it had always been accepted, I think for about 20 years, with a brief gap. Uh, but last fall, when the Clinton administration tried to push it through with like 100% media support, as far as I know, enormous corporate backing, they had to back off, mainly by constituent pressure. So, you know, people were banging on the doors of their congressional representatives, and they backed off, even if they were in favor of it, never came up. Uh, well, those are all indications of how much can be done, even by extremely disorganized uh, groups with no unity and, you know, very little interaction and, you know, scattered all over the place. Just imagine what could be done by really organized popular movements. Uh, that's one of the reasons why the, the doctrinal system has to, you know, the institutions responsible for the indoctrination of the young, the, quote, the trilateral commission, they've got to work overtime to do their job, make sure that people don't have these uh, uh, you know, bad thoughts and worry about inconvenient facts. Uh, but uh, these are victories that should be recognized. I mean, they're kind of defensive victories. They didn't, you know, they prevented something. But they're a signal that you can go on to more substantial ones. What do you think of direct democracy? Well, it depends what you mean by it. Well, it <coughs> I mean, if you mean by it, for example, that, say... As contrasted with representative democracy. Well, it depends. I mean, a any complicated society is going to have to have some kind of representation, I think. I think that's undoubted. Uh, the question is how it works. Well, uh, you, you, your remarks indicated you're dissatisfied with the way power is acquired and wielded in this country. And but ended, that has nothing to do with the... You ended by suggesting that perhaps it's time for some new ideas. Yeah, but that doesn't have anything to do with... I mean, one, it, of them, one of them is that everybody votes on yeah, plebiscites it's, it's, and referendum. More or less, more or less irrelevant. Uh, and it's irrelevant because that's one of the ways in which the doctrinal system diverts your attention from what really matters. Uh, what really matters is the fact that... Uh, the major institutions in the society are under totalitarian control. After all, what's a corporation? You know, a, a corporation is just a tyrannical system, one of the most tyrannical systems that humans have ever devised. It, they've been given extraordinary rights by the courts, not by legislation, early in this century. Uh, they're, like the multilateral agreement, would give them actually the rights of states. They're basically unaccountable to the public. Uh, when they've been given the rights of persons, that means, for example, they have the right to propagandize. So, like, they've been given the rights of free speech, which is insane. You know, these are collectivist institutions. Uh, they've been given the right to advertise, in fact, at your expense. So you get the tax-free. So you get, you pay for the privilege of having your minds destroyed. Uh, and... Uh, uh, they, you know, they, um, you know, they own the information system. I mean, they control the information system. That, what are the media? You know, huge corporations, parts of bigger corporations. That sets the framework of discussion. Discussion that the major decisions that affect what happens in the economy and social life are made behind closed doors. Very little public accountability. They have the right of freedom from search and seizure. You know. Fourth Amendment rights means you can't know anything about what they're doing, you know. Uh, and uh, 
uh, and they have enormous power. Uh, furthermore, you know, I mean, describe this free trade. It's ridiculous. I mean, these about maybe nobody. These are secret institutions, so all figures have to be taken with a big grain of salt because nobody really knows. Uh, but the guesses are that by international economists that maybe 40 percent or so of U.S. trade is actually internal to corporations, meaning it's not trade at all. You know, it's just moving something across a border. It's no more trade than moving from Indiana to Illinois or something like that. It happens across a border, you know, to get cheaper labor, to avoid environmental restrictions and so on. Well, you know, 40% is not a small number. And that's a vast underestimate because there are also complicated strategic alliances among alleged competitors. So IBM and Toshiba and Siemens and so on are working together. You know, they're working together on design, on marketing and so on. Uh, and in fact, the, in fact, it's gotten to the point where some international economists call it a new system of what they call alliance capitalism. You know, big networks of tyrannical institutions basically running the world. I mean, in comparison with this, the difference between, you know, everybody voting and everybody not voting is pretty trivial. These are the major questions. So you think the public opinion polls are a sham? No, they're not at all a sham. In fact, they're extremely interesting. Uh, and you should pay attention to them. Uh, the, uh, uh, the United States is very... Uh, public opinion polls are different from votes, incidentally. Totally different. In fact, public opinions and the results of votes often turn out to be radically different. And some of the reasons are given by the fate of referenda. So, for example, take where I live, Massachusetts. Uh, for years, you know, every year there was a referendum on uh, uh, progressive income tax for the state. Now, that would benefit, you know, an overwhelming benefit for the general population. You take a look at the public opinion polls. At the beginning, very strong support for it. And then it slowly declines. And by election day, it's a minority. Why did it decline? Well, huge propaganda campaigns. Uh, warning people that if you do this, all the business is going to flee out of Massachusetts, you won't have a job, your children will starve, and so on. Yeah, that's just what the guys who own the information system want you to believe. So public you should look at public opinion polls for the same reason that they are taken. Well, why do we have so many public opinion polls in the United States? Well, they're mostly business-initiated. The propaganda institutions, like the PR industry, they want to keep their finger on the public pulse. They've got to know how to design the propaganda. So they want to know what people are thinking. So, in fact, if you want to find out, you can find out too. Uh, and you can find out how these opinions are changed. Sometimes, sometimes they're very resilient, strikingly resilient. So, say, take the Vietnam War. Uh, there was huge propaganda justifying the war. I mean, among articulate people, there was virtually no opposition to it, contrary to what you're told. There was pragmatic opposition. You know, like it's not working or something like that. Uh, but, you know, there's that kind of opposition in Hitler's general staff after Stalingrad. Uh, <laughs> principled opposition was almost non-existent. This has been studied, incidentally, literally almost non-existent. On the other hand, if you look at public opinion polls, they're quite different. So public opinion studies were taken regularly by the Gallup poll. One of the questions every year, you know, regular questions in the Gallup polls from around 1970 to the early 90s, last one I saw, was, what do you think of the war in Vietnam, given an open set of choices, you know, like 10 options, where you usually get low numbers. But it was a steady 70%, roughly, you know, plus or minus a little, uh, that chose uh, fundamentally wrong and immoral, not a mistake. 
There's nobody in educated opinion, articulate opinion who ever said that. I mean, everybody who answered the question that way was making it up for themselves. Uh, well, you know, that's a, it's a striking indication of the divergence between public opinion and policy. Actually, another one is the multilateral agreement on investments, which is just mentioned. As soon as it became public, you know, the whole thing collapsed uh, because uh, for exactly the reason that the negotiator said. It looks like an end to an era when we can make deals behind closed doors and have them rubber stamped by Parliament. Uh, there's rabbles getting involved in things. Uh, those are some of the major reasons for, uh, for the kind of thing that Orwell was talking about, for, you know, thought controlled and free societies. Uh, in fact, the more you, you know, the less force to the, as people win more freedom, as we people have, you know, meaning that the power to coerce by violence has declined, the importance of propaganda has increased. Uh, and that's well understood. I mean, you can, you know, you read it in manuals of the public relations industry and in the productions of academic intellectuals, you know, the founders of modern political science, uh, public intellectuals, and so on. You have to control the public mind because we can't control people in any other way. Well, under those conditions, you know, public opinion polls are important and interesting, uh, but uh, uh, voting is something different because people are giving st highly structured choices, structured by an information which is dedicated to maintaining the power of those who own and run it. Uh, and uh, that power is enormous. I mean, the corp corporate control of the media is like a small part of it. Uh, corporate control of the economy and social life is a far stronger part. The virtual Senate that I mentioned is another part. I mean, unless we think about those institutions uh, worrying, I mean, you know, concern about things like proportional representation or, you know, voting by computer and so on may be of some interest, but it's like tenth-order effect. Noam, you mentioned how uh, geologists have, or their findings are having an impact on the long-term geostrategic impact or interests in uh, the Middle East. So I was wondering if you could comment on, on a different type of scientist's impact on the same resource, um, in particular that of climate scientists um, who are now estimating that over the next hundred years we can safely use maybe 40 years of current usage of fossil fuels without having some serious impacts both on on the ecology, but also on a number of human social structures, and what that will, what potential that has for altering the geostrategic balance, and also for being an issue around which people can confront these sources of power that you talk about. Yeah. Incidentally, just to be clear, uh, I'm not suggesting that policymakers or advisors are paying much attention to any of this. The reason is that they think in extremely short term, uh, in a short term framework. And furthermore, a lot of them are con professional economists. So if you look at the OECD, you know, the rich countries, they don't, apparently don't even have a major study group on this. Uh, and the ones that they have are mostly staffed by professional economists who, just like the head of the World Bank said, they have a religion. And the religion says this can't happen. You know, it can't happen because markets are perfect. You know, so as soon as uh, the price starts to go up, some miracle will happen and people will find an alternative fuel. Well, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe not. Nobody knows. Uh, but if you believe in the religion, you don't have to worry about it. Like most religions, there's an answer, you know. Uh, you got it in graduate school. But uh, uh, as far as I know, there is no serious planning going on about this. And the, f the professional articles about it say they can't 
discover any serious planning. Uh, it should be a serious issue, and what U.S. planners are surely concerned about are the visible steps, realignments in the Middle East region. That they're concerned about. And they certainly are concerned about controlling it. And they are concerned about the trying to, in the United States, about trying to... There's a conflict between the United States and Europe over Iran right now. I mean, the Europeans mostly want to reintegrate it into the world system. The United States, for its own reasons, wants to keep it out and punish it. Uh, and uh, that's apparently a good bit of the sort of background for you know, all this talk about where the pipeline ought to go and you know how much oil there is around the Caspian Sea and so on. So that kind of short-term stuff, yeah, people are thinking about, but not... There's no reason to believe that they're thinking about the long-term questions. I think we ought to be thinking about them, but it doesn't mean planners are. On the climatologist, yeah, you're right. I mean, there's just an overwhelming consensus that there are big problems coming. Nobody knows what they are. You know, like one of the consequences, uh, the critics, there's like about six scientists in the world or something who, are, who take up about half the newsprint who are regularly trotted out to say, uh, which is true, that the models aren't very good and there are a lot of things you don't understand and so on. So there's a lot of uncertainties. But, of course, a point about uncertainty is that, it, you know, the guesses could be off in either direction. That's one of the elementary properties of uncertainty. So the predictions could be overstating, never hear, or they could be understating, which you don't hear, you know. And again, for reasons of short-term gain and profit, until the ozone layer started breaking up in the north, you didn't hear anything about that either. You know, as long as it was just people down, you know, down there or somewhere. And also until the chemical companies had yeah. an alternative to sell. Yeah, yeah. and then they had, they had alternatives. But it really hit the Wall Street Journal and so on when people who count were starting to get affected. Uh, and uh, uh, right now, people who count are, not, are doing pretty well with uh, oil stocks. Uh, the big uh, mergers that are coming along, like Exxon and Mobil, those guys are probably thinking about it. You know, but, it doesn't mean, but that doesn't mean the planners are. Uh, on the climate issues, the ecological issues are there. That's sort of what I had in mind in my last statement. It could well turn out that humans will simply quickly be in a lethal mutation. It could happen. Uh, and in fact, as to the consequences of global warming, you can find predictions all over the place. I mean, some of them are that, you know, the sea rise in meters and meters, which may happen. But another fairly widely held view is that uh, Europe will move into an ice age uh, because the uh, Gulf Stream will be redirected farther south, which would make Europe something like, you know, Greenland or something like that. Uh, and the effects of that on the global, global society are, you know, just incalculable. Another prediction is the reasonably widely held is that the Midwest U.S. will become a dust bowl, which would have a terrific effect on uh, global food supplies for bad reasons, because so much of it has been concentrated there. Uh, so, you know, there are all kinds of serious dangers. People ought to be worrying about these things. Yes, um, I wanted to ask you about the possibility of a solution that, as you mentioned, in Latin America, the basic um, 
other force was the masses, and that's also true about the whole world. Considering that now what the situation is that basically the workers' union in the United States have been demolished for all practical purposes, and that's kind of happening in Europe to them today. And uh, what's happening in the third world, there is no OPEC anymore, and the allied nations don't exist. Basically, most of the progressive uh, forces have been um, attacked and weakened. How do you see that? Because you are, I'm sure you have a better idea than I have, at least. Um, no, we're all guessing. But the, my, my guesses are different. That, do you see that the movements, the little movements here and there somehow will come together and create a mass movement uh, that can connect internationally because that's basically what we need. And being a left person and um, some of the left ways of doing things have been discredited but still I Discredited by who? Uh, by the powers to yeah, be. Power. And as such, Did they ever credit them? No, no. And okay. as such, they tell you they're discredited, but that's because they want you to feel helpless. I don't feel that yeah, way, okay, but it fine. does have, yeah. as you said, propaganda on the yeah. masses. So okay, first, for, just to back up a yeah. little, I mean, I think you ought to be cautious about describing OPEC as a progressive force. No, no, not uh, progressive, but at anything. least in the... In it like wasn't the, even, in, even an independent force. No, the price of oil or... Yeah, but, you know, no. just take a look at U.S. No, and Britain and their reaction to the rise in oil price. They didn't mind. Uh, in fact, the U.S. and Britain kind of suppress... I mean, Britain is kind of like the little puppy dog. They do what they're told. But the United States... Uh, 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 in fact, you know, you can read professional literature which says uh, refers to the U.S. Treasury and then has a footnote saying that's shorthand for the U.S.-U.K. Treasury. But uh, they... Uh, uh, they were not so much opposed to the oil price rise. And the reason is they sort of benefited from it. Vis-a-vis yes. uh, -vis their main competitors, the uh, other industrial countries. Yes. Uh, and in fact, you know, the U.S. was actually running a positive trade balance with Saudi Arabia after the price went up. Because they figured out ways of getting the Arab facade to recycle the profits. Uh, that's why there was such a huge armaments flow to, to the oil-producing countries. Mostly comes back here. Uh, and also, don't forget that the and construction projects and all sorts of things. Uh, that's where Bechtel got, you know, rich from. Uh, and don't forget that when the oil price goes up at the pump, the profits go up too. And the profits are mostly U.S.-British companies. Uh, so they're perfectly happy to have the price go up. Uh, another effect of the early 70s uh, price rise um, was that it uh, enabled the oil majors to bring online uh, production fields that they knew about but were not using because they weren't profitable enough. When the price went up high enough, you could start using North Sea oil, which is what saved the Thatcher government from destroying England, uh, and uh, you could bring along Alaska oil, uh, which are, you know, wasting resources. They're not big, uh, but they're around for 20 years or so, and that was there because of the price rise. Uh, so the oil companies were not unhappy about it. Uh, in fact, there was a meeting in, I think, around February 1974 or so, where Kissinger and, you know, the White House called in... Uh, rich countries, other, and kind of told them, you know, laid down the line on this, not to make a fuss about the oil price rise. 
Uh, and it, in fact, the U.S. and Britain led the way out of the you know short-term global recession then, because uh, they weren't being harmed by it. And if they had been harmed, that our Arab facade would not have stayed in business very long. Uh, you can be sure of that. They would have, you know, they do their job or else they're out. Uh, the so I, I, I mean, you know, there are big problems with energy, but not that. I, I don't. Also, I wouldn't quite say that the American unions have been destroyed. They certainly have been damaged. Uh, they were damaged seriously by the trade agreements. They were damaged even more by just criminal acts authorized by the, by the government. So the Reagan administration effectively told corporations that they were not going to that they were not going to enforce the laws against uh, illegal firing of union organizers and so on. This is pretty open, actually. It was reviewed in the business press, pretty frankly. They simply and the Clinton administration is continuing with that. So the number of firing firings of workers for attempting to organize started shooting way up. It's all illegal, but it doesn't matter if nobody's enforcing the law. Um, if you have a criminal state, you know, crime pays, you know, uh, very well. And uh, one of the effects of that and threats of transfer and so on, that certainly weakened the labor movement along with other, you know, bigger developments. But it's leveled off, and there's a recovery. Uh, and uh, it's, it's not a big change in terms of numbers, but it's quite a change in terms of uh, consciousness. Uh, so, you know, talks like, say, this, uh, you can give to labor audiences 10 years ago. You can now, easily, you know. Uh, and in fact, they're not militant enough, these talks, uh, because they want to see more, you know. Uh, there's, uh, uh, these things you know, oscillate. In fact, for the first time, I mean, the international, you're right about stressing the importance of international solidarity. That's very important, and there's not much of it. Uh, but re just take a look at American labor. You know, up until quite recently, uh, U.S. labor internationally was like an adjunct to the CIA. You know, they were working hard to undermine unions uh, and undermine democratic regimes and so on. That's no big secret. That's changed. People in the international office now are people who are very much attuned to uh, problems, say, of Latin American labor. And in fact, there are some beginnings, you know, they're not huge, but there are some beginnings of Order solidarity, uh, anti-sweatshop agitation, you know, pushing, you know, the, this very limited wording in NAFTA, which was put in to silence public opinion about labor rights, but that's being pushed sometimes constructively by American unions, sometimes by Mexican workers, in fact. And uh, those are good signs. Europe is a big problem. Uh, in Europe, Interaction among the labor unions is apparently, I, I don't know a lot about this, but from what I understand is very slight, you know, different languages and so forth. And that's got to become a more significant factor, especially with the European Union. Uh, but it doesn't seem to be in any ways a lost cause. And all the talk you read about discrediting the left, I mean, that's ridiculous. I mean, these, these views that they say are discredited are ones they've been screaming, denouncing for all their lives, you know, all through history. Nothing discredited about them. Uh, like mild social democratic policies, they've worked quite well, you know, within limits because they leave private power essentially unassailed. But it's the collapse of these policies that's been devastating. The policies weren't discredited. Uh, the, and uh, they're by no means the limit. They're the beginning. I think there's, and things like what we were talking about before, say the popular 
really quite spontaneous popular reaction to things like the MAI. That's rather striking. Uh, that's done with no organization. Uh, and uh, by now, you know, they're structured. Uh, they can interact and they can grow. So it doesn't seem to me a terribly depressing prospect. You can worry about the pace. Maybe it's not adequate. Probably isn't. But, you know, the right kinds of things are happening, I think. Good. I didn't want to give the impression that I was depressed or anything. I'm yeah. going on with <laughs> what yeah. I've been doing for 30 years, but I just wanted to see Yeah. You. Well, you know, there, there are things you can be... I mean, if you, you know, I mean, optimism and pessimism are kind of like personal. Right. You know, it belongs to... It's what you worry. When you're sitting alone somewhere, that's right. what you think about. Otherwise, you just stay optimistic. That's the only way anything will ever happen. That's right. you know? <laughs> Thank you. Dr. Chomsky, just to let you know ahead of time, this is a critical comment. Um, it sounds as if your work draws a lot on C.W. Mills, Marx, and Emmanuel Wallerstein's thinking. And I'm wondering, um, what's new and exciting about Chomsky in theory? So, for us students of the social sciences in the room, uh, what can we take away from this lecture? Yeah. Well, certainly not. Uh, I mean, it's basically, first of all, there's no theory. In fact, I don't know of any theories in the social sciences. I mean, I don't think the term theory should be applied to fields as intellectually thin as the social sciences. Uh, so there's no theory. Uh, there's just some common sense observations. Uh, I started off, if you remember, by saying that views of this kind are commonly described as Marxist, which is kind of ironic because the clearest articulation is people like Adam Smith and Winston Churchill and so on, uh, which is true. Uh, the, so, uh, and I think that most of this is kind of common sense. If there's no theory, what's the point then? Oh, the theory is very different from understanding. Uh, most of our lives, are, we live our lives often pretty successfully without any theories about other people. Uh, we don't have any theories about other people, but, you know, we get along and manage our interactions and so on. Uh, there's very few areas of human life where there's anything you might call a theory. Uh, so some areas, of the, like even in biology, you know, it would be, but when you get very far beyond big molecules, I mean, it starts to become pretty descriptive. Sure, but... There, uh, in, in, this, in the world of human affairs, I don't think there's much in the way of theory. I think the message you ought to take is use your, use your sense. Look at history, you know, think of obvious things, you know, break through the propaganda images. Uh, remember that the institutions are trying to indoctrinate you. Keep that in mind. Compensate for it. Uh, and if you do these things, I think you can get as good a sense of the world as anybody has. Thank you. Um, you mentioned uh, the ongoing uh, artificial threat of Cuba to the United States. And um, I wonder if you could address a radio program called Marti that we beam as a propaganda, and uh, maybe on a larger level, the uh, whole apparatus of the international propaganda broadcasting in the U.S.? Mm -hmm. Well, the U.S., like other countries, has a uh, state propaganda system, um, U.S. Information Agency and others, and it's not particularly huge. I mean, this is, you know, by comparative standards, I don't think it's Considering the size and scale of the United States, it's not relatively a huge program. I mean, I don't think states ought to have the right to carry out propaganda, but even more important, uh, I don't think private entities ought to have the right to carry out propaganda. I mean, maybe the, individual, the individuals in them can, but not as entities. Private entities? Like the New York Times. Or um, 
<laughs> or General Electric. <laughs> or Jorge Mascanosa, who recently died. Who yeah, was he's, he's a person. He should have rights. Uh, people should have rights, I think, independent of what their views are. But whether organic entities should have rights, that's another question. Uh, as I mentioned, when organic entities were given the rights of persons early in this century, that scandalized conservatives, you know, what are called classical liberals, for perfectly obvious reasons. Classical liberal doctrine, what's called conservatism, held that rights inhere in human beings, persons. That means people of flesh and blood, you know, not collectivist entities legal fictions, you know, that were constituted and created and given the rights of persons by court. I think those are things that we ought to question. Why should they have the rights to freedom from search and seizure, for example, so that you don't know what they're doing? I mean, I think an individual should have it. Like, I don't think that cops should have the right to go into your living room and find out what you're up to. Uh, but what about a, uh, an organic entity? Should that have those rights? I mean, should Nazi Germany have those rights, for example, or Bolshevik Russia? I don't think so. So why General Electric? Thank you. I was very disappointed on your expose, first part, in whose is world power. You, did the measure, you mentioned the Qatar, but you, the you emphasized a few seconds ago about history. I mentioned you, you didn't mention at all about Yugoslavia. No, I left I Yugoslavia 40 years ago. I didn't understand West that time why they had me brought to Yugoslavia with Yalta, with Tehran, etc. I'm Serbian by native, a citizen of the United States. I came to the United States in College Park. I won my political freedom in New York, but I lost to my Jewish wife from New York my personal freedom. We have daughter here who got graduated. Uh, diploma last summer, intercultural relations, she cannot understand Jewish mother always right or wrong father Serbian. So we polarized our family of three members in the half. Question, my question is, if organization of European states, 37 countries, signed about quarter of a century ago, uh, non-violation of borders of any states, and former Secretary Baker said in June, I do believe 21st June, in Belgrade, I was not for 40 years over there, then border of Yugoslavia is unviolated. And yet, now my adopted country sided with former colonialist country, France, Great Britain, Portugal, Spain, breaking one country to pieces, same people, same language, two different alphabets. Yeah. What about your victim, poor people on third part of the expose, for economic point of view, for second part about your human rights, we are yeah. always with horns and with, with uh, kangaroo tails, demons, satan, yeah. my Serbian people. Yeah, how you can mash it? How you can explain right, look, it? Look, how can I explain? Well, first of all, every case has to be explained on its own. You're quite right, I didn't mention Yugoslavia, but you know, I didn't mention 99% of the world. Like, for example, I didn't mention Southern Africa, where uh, at the very same time as, all the, as the Bosnian War was going on, there were even more people being killed in Angola. Uh, and in fact, if you go back to the Reagan years, uh, under the rubric of what was called constructive engagement, uh, 
U.S. and British-backed South African forces uh, killed maybe a million and a half people and caused, say, $60 billion of damage. I didn't mention that either. There was a lot of things I didn't mention. You know, but Yugoslavia, yeah, we could look at it, and we sort of, you know, kind of know what happened. Uh, the country was, first of all, was under a uh, dictatorship uh, since the 40s, and that dictatorship had many negative aspects like dictatorships do it was pretty brutal on the other hand it did dampen uh, lots of internal hostilities kept them down you know uh, the dictatorship collapsed part of the reason why it collapsed in fact was IMF rules uh, so during the 1980s it's not just the IMF I mean during the 1980s Yugoslavia did go through a kind of structural adjustment program uh, which had the usual effects that it's had in the third world. Uh, one of the effects that it had was kind of breaking apart the social fabric. That happened alongside the breakdown of the dictatorship uh, when Slovenia and Croatia pulled out. And we don't really know all the details, but as far as is known, it looks as though there was significant German pressure within the European Union to let them break away and facilitate their breakaway. Uh, which led, as everyone predicted, to conflict between Serbia and Croatia. Then came, you know, the Bosnian atrocities and ended up uh, with the U.S. moving in after most of the dirty work was done and imposing, par in effect, partition. Uh, that's, you know, that's more or less what happened. Uh, now the struggle has moved on to Kosovo, which is a very complicated issue. But just to mention one aspect of it, when I said before that... Uh, the Western powers and Western opinion don't even, you know, give minimal, uh, uh, commit, have no minimal commitment to the basic principles of international order. I mentioned Iraq, but I could have just as well mentioned Kosovo. Uh, NATO, which just means the United States, uh, has no authority to threaten or use force. I mean, this is independent of what you think about what's going on there. You can think whatever you like. Uh, but there is no authorization for the threat of use of force by the United States or anyone else. Uh, there's uh, so, I mean, you're right when you say that uh, the whole international order broke down in Yugoslavia, but it did everywhere else too. I mean, didn't it break down when the United States invaded South Vietnam and then the rest of Indochina and ended up killing four or five but, million people? But Dr. Yeah, Chomsky, is in paradox, What's unifying paradox? 16 different countries with dozen different languages in Europe and breaking one small country to pieces, yeah, then the get paradox? together from broken glass you don't drink anymore. I'm sorry, I don't see what the Thank paradox you. is. This is just one of the innumerable problems of international affairs, every one of which has to be looked at on its own, although you find many of the same factors behind them. A lot of them. Two more? Okay. Boss has two more questions, one on each side. <laughs> Dr. Chomsky, uh, my thinking is more uh, from the point of view of uh, India, but you can answer uh, in a more general sense. Uh, uh, I'd like you to comment uh, from the point of view of the so-called third world countries uh, in the face of the globalization. Uh, f for example, if you take democracy, uh, democracy seems to be closely linked with freedom of choice. Uh, but say, if, uh, to take a silly example, uh, if you uh, take, say, uh, 20 cities in India and uh, you expose them to uh, Pepsi or Coke for, say, uh, one month and then take a perfectly democratic referendum, uh, you would find that all of them would support uh, uh, that Pepsi should come into India. So uh, it seems so vulnerable to uh, the onslaught of the multinational corporations or globalization. So well, in like fact, when, you know, when India was sort of 
pressured, and Indian elites agreed, remember, Indian elites agreed, uh, and, and uh, with the Western pressure to what's called liberalize. Uh, I think the first thing that, uh, the first sector of Indian, the Indian economy that was targeted was advertising. So the first thing that happened is big, mostly New York public relations firms and London public relations firms went in there. Uh, and uh, just like you described, you know, carried out huge pressure to try to modify tastes. But that shouldn't really surprise you. I mean, the West has been subjected to that for hundreds of years. No, I'm, uh, it's, uh, I mean, that's why we have a huge public relations industry. It's an enormous industry, which is designed to turn people... I mean, you know, they're not very secret about what they're up to. They want to turn everybody into an atomized consumer who recognizes that life is essentially worthless. You can't control your productive life. You can't control your work life. The only thing you can't talk to anybody else because you have to be isolated and atomized, and you get your gratification by consuming more commodities that you don't want. I mean, that's what the television is about, that's what radio is about, that's what nine-tenths of the newspapers are about, uh, and it's been going on quite consciously, you know, My for a hundred years. Okay, now it's hitting India. Yeah, my concern is more about the solutions. The solution uh, is, I think, to uh, the, you strike at the heart of private power. I mean, as long as, uh, as private power has this, as, as long as you have this extraordinary concentration of decision-making power in essentially unaccountable private organic institutions, you're going to have problems. Just like you have problems if uh, you have a Bolshevik state. I mean, India is very striking. I was there, you know, before and after, uh, and it was pretty striking. I mean, the last time I was there was, uh, first time I was there was all, you know, Indian food and this, that, and the other thing. Last time I was there was uh, December, uh, January 1996, I think. I was there for about a week traveling around the country giving talks. Uh, it happened, you know, it happened to hit a huge snowstorm, so I, the flight took around 48 hours. Uh, and uh, I had... Turned out I had to give the first talk at the Delhi School of Economics uh, right uh, like two hours after I landed, you know, after not having slept for a couple of days. Uh, so I asked for some food, you know, something to eat. You know what they brought? McDonald's. Kentucky Fried Chicken. Okay. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's kind of a mind-boggling introduction to the new India. <laughs> uh, but... Uh, My concern is that... You do, well, what do you do? The I mean, India can defend itself. I mean, for example, the Indian media, which are not, you know, great uh, exemplars of democracy. You know, they're privately owned, rich people and so on. But they defended themselves against public takeover. I mean, Murdoch and others wanted to take them over, and they just resisted. Uh, India has somewhat resisted the uh, international regime. It's kind of, that's an interesting story. Uh, the United States claims to be in favor of free trade, but really isn't. Nobody is. Nobody powerful is, at least, except for somebody else. Uh, but uh, uh, one of, if you, if you look at the World Trade Organization, one of the founding doctrines of it is radically protectionist. Uh, that's uh, what's called intellectual property rights. Uh, they extended intellectual property rights, like patents, for drugs, you know, to an absolutely unprecedented extent, uh, and also extended them from processes to products. Products were never 
patented before, just processes. That's not only an attack on free trade, it's also an attack against innovation. It means that some smart guy in India can't figure out a smarter way to uh, produce some drug. Uh, the purpose of this is a major assault on free trade and on innovation and growth in order to ensure the profits of things like Merck Pharmaceutical. Uh, well, you know, India resisted. So the, well, you know better than I do, so fill me in if I don't have the de details right. But the Indi there was so much public opposition that the Indian parliament couldn't ratify it. I think the government went over their heads, if I recall correctly, and ratified yeah, it anyway. They're still so, trying to... Yeah, and by now it's kind of interesting, but the pharmaceutical, uh, India had very cheap, relatively cheap drugs because they had their own pharmaceutical industry. It's like as compared with Pakistan, which had international companies, the Indian prices were much lower. Uh, and of course, the purpose of all of this stuff is to make the prices go up. You know. uh, at first, the Indian pharmaceutical firms objected, but I noticed that now they're not objecting, which suggests, maybe you know the answer, but suggests to me that they're probably linking up with the Western pharmaceutical firms so they can just exploit the Indians more efficiently, all of them together, I guess. I mean, I don't know that for a fact. Uh, but, yeah, these are... But the point of all of this is that India can resist. So, for example, India maintained some kind of capital controls. In fact, it's kind of striking. If you look at Asia, there's an Asian crisis, but there are a few islands... Uh, which haven't been much affected. India is one, China's another, Taiwan is another. Uh, they all have some degree of capital controls. And that's been noted in the professional literature. So India was able to resist that kind of liberalization. Uh, and, uh, you know, when you talk about India, it's kind of misleading because there are sectors in India, the wealthy sectors, the professionals and so on, who like the globalization. But look, there were sectors in India who loved the Raj. You know, they enriched themselves. They were the counterpart to the Arab facade. You know, you go to any third world country you want, you know, the poorest one in Central Africa, you'll find a sector of very wealthy people, very privileged, very wealthy people who are kind of linked up mostly with Western power, uh, like the people who ran India for the British. And the, the British didn't run it. They ran it through an Indian civil service and, in fact, Indian troops. And about 90% of the British army was Indian troops. Well, you know, those guys do fine. You know, they now are in favor of this kind of liberalization. Now, the population may suffer, but that's a different story. Thank you. Last. Uh, I read this interview with you, and uh, I think someone, I think it was Marty Peretz, said that you were outside the pale of intellectual responsibility. I was wondering... I agree with uh, that. <laughs> what, was, right. what was the context of that, and also, how do you respond? same way everybody else is responding. <laughs> I mean, as he defines intellectual responsibility, that's absolutely right. For example, I don't have a slavish, Stalinist-like loyalty to his holy state. You know? Okay, that puts me out of the pale of responsibility right off. <laughs> okay, and then also, I met this guy who said that your last name is Chomsky because your dad spelled it with a chet. Is that true? Uh, that's what the guys at Ellis Island Immigration decided, yeah. I mean, actually, as you know, and from East, they were Eastern European immigrants. They didn't have last names. So my father was, I'll tell you if you like, but it was so-and-so, son of so-and-so. And somewhere along the line, probably at Ellis Island, they got this name, which my father did pronounce with a ch. And in fact, I went through early years of schooling that way until I finally realized that you know I'm being put with the H's or the something uh, so I just changed the pronunciation just for convenience 
Yeah. All right. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs>